Hello, everybody. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. This is take two. Um, let's open up in a quick word of prayer. Father, uh, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that through it you engage our, our hearts and our minds and speak to us these truths. We thank you so much for using Peter, the apostle, to write these words. And again, speak to us. In Jesus' name, we, we ask this humbly. Amen. So in John chapter 21, verses 18 to 23, Jesus predicts Peter's death. And Peter's not very crazy about, about his death. And he's like, Jesus, you're such a downer. First you predict my denial, and now you're predicting my death. And in classic Peter mode, what about John? And to which Jesus says, never you mind, John. Okay, you worry about you. But I think that these words of Jesus to Peter, and Peter knew, we all know we're on borrowed time, but Peter really knew he was on borrowed time because Jesus just finished telling him that he was on borrowed time. So I believe Peter lived in such a way that he was anticipating the kingdom of Jesus. He knew Jesus was coming back. And, and he lived in such a way that every day of his life reflected that Jesus was coming back. He knew he was probably gonna, he was gonna die because Jesus told him. But he was also certain that he was going to resurrect because Jesus resurrected. So, so sure, he was questioning if John was going to die. And there was a rumor that was circulated at that time that, that John was probably not going to die before the second coming. It addresses it there in John chapter 21. Obviously, we know that John the Apostle died. Although, we also know that he was the last man standing, dying at the end of the first century. Okay, But the fact of the matter is, when you read... Peter's writings, when you read Paul's writings, when you read the Gospels, you get the sense that the first church thought that the second coming was going to happen in the, in the context of the first century. But Jesus still didn't come. Okay, And I want us to keep that in mind because that's what we're going to be dealing with today. We're going to be dealing with the topic of Jesus' second coming and its relationship to the false teachers. We're going to start by reading verses 1 and 2. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Like in 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1, and in 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 also, Peter's identifying himself as the apostle Peter. He, and in 2 Peter, he actually does, takes it a step further by identifying himself even more so as Simon Peter, as we saw earlier when we started the 2 Peter chapters. He identifies himself as, second, as, as Simon Peter the Apostle, so that there is no doubt that this is the same guy. Not only that, but as we kept reading in chapter 1, he also identifies himself as an eyewitness. So he identifies himself as that Peter. And he says that the purpose that he, that he does this, and here's the other thing, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So here's another indication, and we talked about this earlier, but I think it's always a good thing to keep seeing. He goes, this is now my second letter to you. Obviously, the first letter is 1 Peter. So now we're on 2 Peter. Another argument in favor for, for, for both 1 and 2 Peter actually having been written by Peter. Because why would Peter reference another letter? So they know this other letter. So this is why we also believe that even though the Greek in 1 Peter is far superior to the Greek in 2 Peter, all that meant was that he had someone help him write the first one, and the second one he wrote on his own. And um, 
and, and, and the difference is showed. And that's all it was. But as far as the content, you know it's the same Holy Spirit. He, um, he says that I, I have written, and he tells you the purpose there. I, I have written this. He reminds us to stimulate us. He's to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. The idea is that to stimulate something to wholesome thinking is that when you uh, put it under the sun to examine something, you're going to find it to be pure. That's the idea behind it. You're going to find it to be genuine. This is the genuine article. To stimulate is also the idea of awaken. Y'all been kind of lazy in your thinking. So I need you guys to, you know, you know, wake up, you know, to stimulate, to spur. Um, he says, recall, strictly speaking, it wasn't a, a matter that they didn't know what they needed to know, but it was about them forgetting what they need. They needed to know when they needed to know it. They knew what they needed to know. That's why he's recalling. Recall means that you already know this. To recall something means to bring it back. Because in other words, it's there. The knowledge was there. But we needed to bring it to the forefront. You need to bring it to the forefront when you're facing adversity. Okay? In the middle of, 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 of trying times, in trying situations, you need to recall things. And also when you're encountering false teachings, you have somebody telling you, you know, all roads lead to heaven. You need to recall that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Because otherwise, it's very easy to get taken by other philosophies. It's very easy to get taken by them. There's a lot of people, the Baha'i believe, that every road leads to God. doesn't matter which road you take. That couldn't be further from the truth. Not when Jesus is making claims saying, uh-uh, I'm the only way. So he's, he's asking us to recall. and I'm right, So he's writing these things to, to, recall, to make us recall the words spoken in the past. And he says, by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord, and Savior through your apostles. In other words, he's telling us that we need to know God's word. The Holy Prophets is a reference to the Old Testament, and, and the other portions is the still being written New Testament, the words of Jesus, which is the Gospels, and which were, were given by the apostles, as well as the rest of the epistles that were written by the apostles. We need to know the word of God. Verses 3 and 4. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know, some uh, versions, it says scoffers who scoff. And I'm like thinking, gee, thanks, Captain Obvious. It's like saying a murderer who murders. You know, but actually, no, it, it's actually something more than that. When you use it like that, and again, this is where it's helpful to know, like the idioms and the practices of people's different languages. The idea is if you're talking about scoffers, it's basically you're making like an, an emphasis. I'll give you guys an example. In English, you don't you don't use uh, double negatives. Right. You know, you, you can't say, you know, we don't use double negatives. But in Spanish, using double negatives helps to emphasize the negativity of something. So when I was learning English, I had a hard time because I, I, my brain was wired to think in Spanish. So I would use double negatives incessantly. Now, my, my brain has been reprogrammed 
So I don't think that way. Now I have a problem when I speak it in Spanish because I'm so used to not using double negatives anymore. But really, it's the idea of emphasis. So the scoffers are the false teachers. Um, we, we saw how he addressed this in, in, in chapter 2. Very heavy-handed. Probably one of the heaviest chapters in the Bible towards the enemies of God. Um, this also is other critics who, who oppose Christianity. They're characterized by their extremely liberal lifestyles, especially when it comes to sexual issues. Um, they're intellectually pretentious. And they're motivated by greed. The last days is basically the time period from, from now till Jesus Christ's second coming. We've been living in the last days since Jesus' first coming, pretty much. Um, Jesus' second coming, with the judgment that goes along with it, think about this, would probably be the last thing that these scoffers want. The last thing these scoffers want is for God's judgment to be real. It's not in their best interest, especially the way they've been living. They basically have been saying, ah, you know, the world as we know, it's the same as it ever was. There's no coming judgment from God. That's what the scoffers are saying. So obviously, if there's no coming judgment from God, why live a pious life? Why live a disciplined life? Why not live it up, as the world would say? But Peter's going to counter this in the, in the following verses. So we're going to read now. From five to seven. But they, the scoffers, the false teachers, deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged, flooded, and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They deliberately forget. In other words, they, they choose to reject God. This reminds me of Romans 1, verses 20 to 25, where Paul writes, nature testifies to the reality of God. It's never really a question, is there a God, so much as the question is, who is God? Nature tells you there has to be a God. Ancient man, intelligent man, believed in God. So it was never a question about is there a God or gods? It's really a question, who is God? I'm going to read a little kind of a paraphrase of that portion of Scripture. It says, for since the creation of the, of the world, God is evident in his creation, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that people are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they refused to acknowledge him. They exchanged God for a lie. This is, this is uh, what these false teachers do. They, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Nature speaks plenty that there is design in the universe, that there is order in the universe. Even in the midst of chaos, we see that there is a rule. The reason we're able to define chaos is because we see that there's too much of, a, of an order. So we see any aberration from that order we know that that's, there's something that happened, you see. But it makes it clear that there had to be a designer. There had to be a creator. And this is where it is self-evident that God exists. But these scoffers want to challenge that. Peter argues from history. He, he, he talks about God being involved 
in history, again, because these scoffers are basically making, the way they're almost talking about it is if they're even giving God any props, well, he's not a theist, he's a deist, if they're even doing that much. A deist meaning that if if God created it, they, you know, he's not very hands-on in his creation. He's not very involved. And we don't believe that to be true. And Peter is, is going to argue from history that that is not true. In fact, he argues that, you know, um, that God created things, right? And that he creates land and he separates the water from, from the land, from the sky and, and the water. And metaphorically, the waters represent chaos. Whenever you see this in, in, in the Bibles and, and in a lot of ancient literature, the water, because of its being fluid and unstable and you don't want to be lost at sea in the middle of a storm, do you? Water is always represented as, as an agent of, of chaos. And it, it's a picture of order that God brings out of the chaos is what, what, what happens in creation. The main point is that God is actively involved in history. Okay? And he's not a deist. By his word, using water, God also destroys the human race. And we know this in the story of, of uh, Noah. God judged the earth and destroyed it. In the future, by God's word, the world is going to be judged by fire. Again, why the second coming of Christ is something that the scoffers are not looking forward to because of the judgment that comes with it. Verses 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do not forget. In other words, that's the negative form of what Peter's been saying throughout this book. Remember. Notice how many times Peter says remember in this book or recall. He's always trying to get us to remember, to recall, to keep in mind. He's very much about engaging our minds. Even in 1 Peter, you see that, that he engages our minds when he talks about Always be ready for a defense for why you believe what you believe. You know, God operates outside of time. God operates above time. God is the Lord of time, and God is not affected by time. Peter writes here, uh, not slow as we understand. And the reason he writes this is because, again, God operates outside of time, and we need to understand that for us, there is a temporal component in our perspective. For instance, God knows the beginning, middle, and the end. We still need to get there. You see the difference? God sees it all at once. We, we move in a linear fashion. God moves in a, in a God way. There's a difference in our perspectives. Therefore, we need to understand that God is patient. Romans 2.4, not slow. God is patient. God's desire is that all people repent. That's what God desires. God's desire is for all people to repent. And there's an abundance of scripture, and I'm only going to list a few if you guys want to look them up later. Ezekiel 18.23, to give you one from the Old Testament. Acts 17.20. Romans 11.32. 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 6. 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. Titus 
2.11, Hebrews 2.9, 1 John 2, verse 2. God's desire is for people to repent. God's decree is different than his desire, though. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, and we're talking about Jacob and Esau, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by the works of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. In other words, God was explaining this to um, their mother. Okay, The older will serve the younger. And again, the point of this is God's purpose in election. It's about God's choosing. Choosing us. God selected us before the creation of the earth. He hits this really big in 1 Peter chapter 1. And he's kind of dealing with this topic again. This portion, by the way, that I read was from Romans 9, 11, and 12, which is Paul's commentary on that. The way I, I like to think about it is, is something like this. In my mind, the key to understanding God's sovereign choosing for salvation it's to understand that while God has been merciful to, to all of us, to everyone, we all have rejected God. We all rejected God. But he came back to select few. And he, he, he made an offer of salvation. Who are we to tell God how to choose and who to choose? And that's really what it comes down to. I mean, it's very easy to accuse God of, of being unfair. But as we saw in Isaiah, his ways and his thoughts are higher than our own. There comes a point where reasoning, human reasoning, hits a dead end. And there comes a point where it makes better sense, and I think it brings more glory, if God does the choosing, if God does the selection. I'm just grateful that he selected us. And you know what? While we may wrestle with a couple things about that, I don't think there's anything wrong with wrestling with certain things that we don't get. We just still continue being faithful and trusting God. In fact, isn't that when trust is most needed, when you don't really see what's up ahead? So there's a lot of that. And I just think that, again, he is God and we're not. In verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The day of the Lord is more specific than, than last days. It's talking about God's coming judgment. Like a thief. This is similar to the idea of a pregnant woman who's giving birth. It's never a question of if, but more a question of when. But here's two things that are certain about it. And I actually use one of the words. It is certain and it is sudden. A pregnant woman, it's never a question, is she going to have a baby? Will she or won't she? We don't tune in like it's a, like a TV episode where we don't know what, what the next thing's going to happen. It's almost like watching the Batman TV show from the 60s. We knew he was going to get out of it. It was just a question of how he was going to get out of it. Yeah, I would say, will Batman die? Of course not. We know because they need to make more shows to make more money for commercials, you know. 
So it's the same thing here. The only thing is that the Batman TV show didn't exist here, so they couldn't use it as an illustration. But the idea is of the thief and the night. It wasn't a question of if, when. Same thing with a pregnancy. It's not a question of if, when. It is certain. It is sudden. Okay? In other words, they are going to disappear as this uh, heavens saying um, – I jumped ahead here. Heavens disappearing with a roar or a great noise means that, in other words, they are going to disappear as, as we know them in the here and now. Uh, the elements destroyed by fire. This is the earth and, and everything's laid bare. Verse 7. Earlier, um, this fire, like the flood in, in, in waters in, in Noah's time, is going to destroy everything in judgment. Most likely, this is going to happen at the end of the millennial kingdom, as best as we can determine from, from Scripture. Revelation 21.1, um, after the millennium, John writes that he saw a new heaven and earth. The old making way for the new is the idea here. The old earth and heaven are going to make way for the new earth and new heaven. There's a lot of it I don't understand. All I do know is that God's going to judge whether it's going to be a complete destruction and a, and a complete creation or basically a renewal of the existing. That can be debated. But the fact is there's going to be a judgment and things are not going to be status quo. They're going to change. Um, elements in the Greek may mean planets and stars, astrology. It may be a reference to angelic powers of evil. Uh, it wouldn't be far-fetched in light of the conversation in 2 Peter 2 regarding the angelic realm. I'm just kind of letting you guys know the, the options. As far as laid bare, it means it's going to be burned up. Um, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The point of all that Peter has been telling us, the sudden and the certain return of Jesus and everything that follows should be our motivation. It should be what incentivizes us to live right in the here and now. Our view of the second coming should have an impact on our ethics and on our morality. From our point of view, we still have a role to play in the hastening and, and advancing of God's kingdom. Because it talks there about, you know, that we can speed up the second coming. Well, God already knows when that's going to happen. So on the one hand, from God's perspective, when we see that there's a difference between our perspective and God's perspective, God knows the time and date of when that judgment is going to happen. God sees history we have a role to still play out. We have to play our part. It's not like we're going to surprise God, mind you, with any of our choices or decisions. But we still have to do what we still have to do. Things that we need to do in order for the second coming to happen is get the gospel spread to every part of the earth. And to remember, until the word is, is, is uh, spread throughout the world, you know, Christ won't come. So we have a duty towards missions. And, and getting the gospel out there. So we play a role in this. And God always involves us in, in what he's doing. Okay? And in that sense, we do hasten or, or speed up the second coming. You know? But not so much in, in the perspective of God. So much maybe from our own perspective. It's a bit of a, of a thing to understand, but it, that's where it comes from. So we get both views. We get God's view where he knows everything and when it's going to happen, but also our, our role in it. 
It's like when God created the Garden of Eden, he wasn't over there wondering, oh, what, what are Adam and Eve going to do? Because i gotta, I got to make a plan you know, to kind of like you know, make my next chess move based on what, what decision they're going to make. He already knows this. But he still wants us to do our role in, in what it is that he has set for us. In Matthew 24, 14, and in Matthew 28, 19, you know, we talk about um, that, the idea of, of uh, advancing the kingdom of God and the importance of spreading this gospel everywhere so that that may happen. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, we pray, Thy kingdom come. So the second coming of Jesus is when the kingdom's going to fully culminate. Bottom line, God knows when, as far as we're concerned, we need to hasten it, though. Uh, 12, the second half. That day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We already discussed that part, so we're going to move on um, So to verse 14. So when... when so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Once again, make every effort in all diligence, depending on the translation you have. So then, make every effort. In other words, don't go against the grain of what God is trying to grow, to develop, to mature in you. Don't go against it. To be found spotless and blameless. When you think about those words, they're, they're sacrifice terms. The idea of spotless and blameless. If you guys remember in the Old Testament, a sacrificial lamb had to be what? Spotless, right? That was the imagery. We are to be kind of found. So the idea is it's sacrificial language in our context. Because to live a right life with God as a result of salvation, not to gain salvation, but to live a right life with God has a sacrificial component. Was this not what First Peter was all about? Life, life is a sacrifice. Life has trials and suffering in it. Also, um, there there is the the element of sacrificial living. So so we have to we have to to deal with that. And then there's also peace. And more than the absence of war, which is usually what people think about when when they say peace, more than the absence of war, it's to be in a harmonious state with God and others. That's what it's about. Shalom is about being in a harmonious state with God and, and others. It's not about the absence of war. Um, right now, I'm watching uh, this series on Disney+. Plus. I'm a big Beatles fan. So they did this thing called uh, Get Back, be the session. And the Get Back is basically, I don't know if any of you guys ever saw it. It's the Let It Be movie, which was intended to show the Beatles creating an album. And so they gave um, a camera crew full access to them. This is kind of like reality TV before reality TV was a thing. So they had full access to the Beatles as they were creating this album. But the problem was that there was more fighting and bickering going on with the Beatles than actually uh, music being produced. And this is not about the Beatles, but I'm, I'm using this to, to make a point, though. So the thing is that... The Beatles are not like shooting each other with guns, grenades, or coming at each other with knives. But they were not at peace with each other. You see, a lot of times people get on in this world, and the fact that they're not necessarily overtly fighting does not mean that there's peace in that situation. 
Peace is not about war. It's about harmony. It's about real harmony, about lasting harmony. That's what shalom is about. So this is what Peter's writing to that effect, that it, it's about that that God wants from us. Um, verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And that's a good thing. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. God's patience is to allow as many people as possible to be saved. He wants as many that will be saved to be saved. This is what he wants. This is the reason for God's patience. Here's the thing. We don't know at what point in human history we are where the people that God has chosen to be saved are saved. There are people being saved every day in different parts of the world. We don't know how many more generations of humans God plans on saving. So the thing is, think about this for a moment. If Jesus would have came in the first century like they had thought it might happen, there's all these saved people Thousands of years of saved people, really. 2,000 years worth of saved people that wouldn't be saved. You get what I'm saying? You're tracking with me? So there's that many people who wouldn't be saved. We don't know what God's number of people for this new earth and new heaven is going to be like. Look, you know what? Again, from God's perspective, when you got all eternity, soon can be any time. It could be another million years. I'm not saying that before I get accused of any heresy or, or blasphemy or, or anything like that. But I'm just saying that from God's perspective, he could let the world go another 40 billion years if he wants. It would still be soon for a person who has all of eternity. Okay. Now, whatever it is, whatever God's plan is to save people, I want, I want to be behind that. I don't know what it is, but I want to be behind whatever God's will is. So if he wants to save that many more generations... I'd like to know that my great 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 grandchildren will be saved. That would be awesome. That that many more generations of little Durans would be saved. I don't know. On the other hand, boy, I wish I sure wish he was here yesterday already. I'd love to see Jesus. I'd like to get his autograph. I mean, I'd like to, you know, you know, you know, do high fives with him and stuff. And I would really like to, to, to see the man himself, the guy who's responsible for, for our salvation. And I would like that to have happened yesterday. So I don't know. All I know is that whenever it happens, it's going to be soon. And all I know is that God is trying to, is saving people. So I find a little bit of peace in that. Okay? Uh, especially when Peter wrote this, again, we weren't born. <laughs> So we should be grateful that Jesus did not come in the first century because we got a shot at salvation because he didn't. Okay? So I'm, I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's just really cool. Now, Paul, I love the name dropping here. I love it because it's kind of like a Marvel movie where your favorite heroes get together. You know, here's all, oh, Paul's talking about Peter. In, in, in Paul's letters, he writes about Peter, and Peter is talking about Paul. Oh, cool. You know, you like to see all your favorite heroes together or name-dropping each other, you know? That's the nerd in me. Anyways, so I love the fact that, it, it, that he drops the name there. You know, it's kind of like when you watch those Marvel movies and they make a reference to one of the other heroes in the other movies. Well, that's what's kind of going on here. There's also 
a certain comfort in something that I, I don't know if you guys picked up on this or not. But there's also a certain comfort to knowing that the apostles didn't all understand each other on everything. I mean, Paul, Peter's saying here, you know, that Paul guy, he's all right. But you know what? I'll be brutally honest with you guys. Some of his stuff goes over my head. And this is Peter saying that. Peter, who had Jesus as a teacher. And now, you know, he's talking about Paul. And he's like, yeah, that Paul guy, he's all right. But man, some of the stuff he says, I can't wrap my, my brains around it. So I don't feel so bad now when I read the Bible that I don't understand everything because neither did they. Neither did they. Okay? So that's, eh, it's kind of cool, you know? Uh, all, so all of a sudden, I don't feel as dumb as I thought I did. But seriously, if the first century Christians have difficulties understanding each other, that should give us pause and humility to, um, to recognize that we won't understand everything either. And, and we don't need to understand every minutia. We don't have to know everything correctly. We can, get, we can be wrong about the rapture. We can be wrong about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, you know, uh, Chicago trip, whatever. You know, we can be wrong about that stuff and it isn't going to be the end of the world. Okay? If they couldn't figure out everything themselves... And they had, they thought it, that the second coming was going to happen in their lifetime. While they don't say it's going to happen in their lifetime, when you read what they're, what they write about Peter and Thess- I mean not Peter, Paul and Thessalonians, where he's talking about because there's concerns. Well, Christians are dying. Um, are they? Did they lose out on the second coming? And, and, and Paul has to write, no, 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 no. They're going to be a part of it too, you know. And he has to explain it based on the Holy Spirit explaining this to him. But I think they all believe that the first century that Jesus' second coming was going to happen within that time. There's the prophecy of the 70 weeks. You know, if, if it was consecutive, the 70 weeks would have been over sometime during that first century, and it wasn't. We believe there's a pause, and we believe that pause, based on the scriptural evidence, is for the church age. So there's a lot of things that you don't really see till after the fact. A lot of people miss Jesus' first coming because they didn't understand scripture. And Jesus had to explain this to them after the fact. So there's a lot of that. So we should have humility that we don't understand everything. It's, it's about humility. It's about relying on the Holy Spirit. The key thing here is that we, that if we don't understand something, don't distort it. If you don't understand something, don't distort it. The Holy Spirit, uh, the Father and Son, the Trinity, we understand that they are one God, yet three persons. To try to force an explanation beyond that, as the Jehovah Witness have done, that's heresy. That's wrong. Because basically in doing so, they diminish the deity of Jesus. They reduce Jesus' deity. We don't do that. When we don't understand something, we accept it for what it is, and we trust God. And we let God make sense of it if he chooses in our lifetime. And if not, do not distort scriptures. Verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may be not, I'm sorry, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless, of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. We've been warned about the false teachers. We've been warned about these scoffers. 
We've been warned about not being complacent in verse 1. I've written to stimulate, to awaken you, so that you may not be carried by, away by error. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, You who think you're secure, who, who, you, who think you stand firm, you best get off your high horse and have enough humility to realize that you're capable of falling. Mind you, that's my paraphrase, but that's essentially what it's saying. So we have to, there's this thing where we have to be on alert. We need to be, we need to have a humble disposition at all times. Humility is a great deterrence against backsliding, and it's also a great deterrence about, against being misled. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's continual affirmation that Jesus is God. He makes, we talked about this earlier, that Peter makes one of the boldest statements about Jesus being God in 2 Peter 2, where he says Jesus is God. That's about as clear a statement as it gets. Um, Peter's, Peter's continual affirmations. So we grow. And notice that grow is an imperative. It's a command. And I want you to stop and think about it. I'm going to ask this question to myself. I'm going to say this to myself. Mickey, grow. Man, I'm stuck at 5'10 or 5'9, whatever my height is right now. Um, I'm going to kind of do like uh, Miles Morales' Spider-Man when uh, Peter Parker asked him to, to, to do something in his power. I can't grow. Mickey, grow hair. It doesn't grow. How can you command something or someone to grow? We grow to grow the command to grow is to position ourselves to be in a place to grow, a, a, a place that allows for growth. In other words, it's, it's not, not about steps we take in discipleship, but to be in a circumstance or a place that allows for it. Do you attend church? Do you read the Bible? Do you pray? Do you meditate? Again, it's not about rituals. But are you putting yourselves in positions that will allow for God to grow you? A seed. Remember, we talked about the seed that if I have the, the seed in my pocket, the seed has all the potential to grow. But the seed needs to be put in soil. And that's great. Now, now, I'm, now I'm giving it a shot for growth, right? Putting it in soil. Now, I can put the seed on the table, put some water on it. It'll grow problem is it won't have any roots or nutrients, so it won't really grow much more than that. But if I put the seed in the soil, then I water it, make sure it's got the proper lighting, then that seed has a chance to grow. That's the, the command that we've got. we got to put ourselves in positions to grow. Again, being connected to God and his word, being a part of a church, being in obedience to God. This is how we grow. And Peter talks about growing in grace and knowledge. Remember, we talked about both the word epinosis, in other words, that relational knowledge about what, of, of God, because we're in an intimate relationship, kind of like I epinosis Chris. Chris and I have a, a friendship relationship. We know each other well. I gnosis a lot about a lot of other things. In other words, I have trivial knowledge. Of, so the, it's the idea to grow relationally, but also about other things as well. For instance, 
Other things I know about Chris, as you can see by his cap, he likes wearing Harley Davidson stuff. He likes dressing up like a rocker. He's got his leather jacket on all the time. I mean, dude likes to do the rock and roll lifestyle like that cake song. I mean, that's Chris. I know him, but I also know little things about him. He lives in Des Plaines. I know how to get to his house. I can't tell you how to get there, but I know how to drive there. You know, that is knowledge. See, I know trivial things. I know who his mother is. I know he loves dogs a little too much for my taste. You know, he's got a basketball court in, in his driveway. These are things, trivial knowledge. You get the idea? So it's about knowing Chris relationally. Like, I know his taste in music. Uh, I know what, what his heart is. He wants to be a missionary one day. You know? So these are things... Epinosis and gnosis. So we got to have both of these things in relationship to Jesus. Because the idea, you know, you really need to. It's not just knowing about Jesus, but it's also knowing Jesus. But knowing Jesus, also know about him as well. You know? So it, it, you want this, this knowledge of Jesus. Again, this is how we grow. Okay? And we are to grow in these things. For uh, the all of existence the all of our existence is to give glory to God, to bring glory to God. Uh, in the book of Daniel, for instance, the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. It's about God. The book of Isaiah is not about Isaiah. The book of Jeremiah is not about Jeremiah. They're books about God. The purpose of each and every one of our lives here is not to live unto ourselves, but to live for and, and to give glory, in other words, give props to the God who made it all. That is the point of our lives. And this is what Peter's telling us here in this last verse. We are to give it all to God. It's all for God. My teaching is not so I can get a, I don't know, uh, some major contract with something, which is not going to happen, by the way. But it's to bring glory to God. My teaching is not to entertain you, not to be liked by you. My teaching is to bring glory to God. If I fail to bring glory to God in what I'm teaching you, then this teaching means nothing. It's all about giving glory to God. And everything, going back a little bit to Colossians chapter 3, and everything we think, say, and do, let it all bring glory to God. And I'm going to end that with a big amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. Thanks for listening and God bless you guys.